Welcome to the Terrible Podcast with your host from SteelersDepot.com, where you can find all your latest and greatest Steelers news. It's Dave Bryan and Alex Kazora, always lit, talking Steelers. And now, here's Dave and Alex. Welcome to the Terrible Podcast, Season 14, Episode 69. He's Joe Clark and Ross McCorkle. I'm Alex Kazora, SteelersDepot.com. Thanks for being back with us here this Friday episode, Steelers Nation, as the Pittsburgh Steelers get ready to travel out west and take on the Seattle Seahawks Sunday afternoon, 4.05 Eastern Time. A critical game for both sides, each team 8-7, and seven, fighting for their wild card lives. As you guys probably have already picked up on, no Dave Bryan today. He is on a little vacation going to one of the uh, bowl games out there in Tucson. So well-deserved. Hopefully he's having a good time out there. And so filling in for him today is Joe Clark and Ross McCorkle. You've heard these guys before during draft roundtables and preseason predictions. And of course, you read about their work on the site, Steelers Depot. These guys are big-time contributors and leaders and are as important to the site as Dave and myself. So Appreciate you guys filling in. Uh, Joe, I'll start with you. How you doing? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Looking forward to my first you know, appearance on a regular uh, podcast here. So I'm looking forward to it. Should be a good time. And Ross, thank you as well for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. Uh, this week's a little bit personal for me. I, I, I moved to Seattle. Actually, uh, it was a few days before Super Bowl 40. And so I was that mm. kid showing up to to school in my Steelers gear. And I don't know if you remember that game, but there was some controversy and all. So <laughs> there was no bullying or anything like that, I promise. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, that's great. How long were you in Seattle for? Uh, I was there all through like junior high and high school. So about 10 years. Does it rain as much as they say it rains? <laughs> Actually, when when I moved there, I think we were in a record breaking like 35 straight days or something like that. So it was uh Yes. So, yes. OK, gotcha, gotcha. Well, I think the weather's supposed to be decent for uh, the weekend, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Hopefully the Steelers are decent for this weekend. They certainly have to be. Let's just dive right on in with the injury situation for both sides. Notable names for Pittsburgh and for Seattle for the Thursday report and the Friday report. Not out yet. Uh, recording this Friday morning, not practicing on Thursday included. Linebacker Landon Roberts with the pec injury suffered against the Bengals. Minka Fitzpatrick has been a DNP on Wednesday and Thursday, despite some optimism from Mike Tomlin that he would practice in some capacity this week. Limited was Kenny Pickett. He's been limited on Wednesday and Thursday in all of last week, uh, practicing full Trenton Thompson with his neck injury that caused him to miss the Bengals game. So mixed bag overall. Roberts told reporters don't count him out, but it's not looking good for him. Fitzpatrick almost certainly will not play, unfortunately. At least it appears Thompson's going to come back. And then, of course, all eyes on Kenny Pickett limited. To me, this thing is still very much tracking and trending for Mason Rudolph to start on Sunday. Uh, Ross, I'll start with you. Your kind of thoughts on the quarterback situation and, and Pickett's you know practice availability. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, uh, I guess, prevailing narrative right now of uh, Tomlin being able to use Rudolph, um, or sorry, being able to use Pickett's injury as an out to to allow Rudolph to play and to allow to ride that hot hand. I think that's most likely what's going to happen. Um, and next week, you know, if, if Rudolph performs well, then he's really going to have a, a tough decision to make 
Uh, I'm, I'm still in the camp that it's too early to move on from Kenny Pickett. There's a lot of people calling for Mason Rudolph. I think I saw a comment yesterday. Um, Mason Rudolph and uh, Deontay Johnson or George Pickens were going to be the next Ben and Antonio Brown. So oh, the hysteria is is in full swing. But um, I think we've only seen two games with Kenny Pickett or one and a half games with Kenny Pickett sans Matt Canada. And he threw for, I think, 70 percent completion percentage, 348 yards or something like that. I want to see more of that with without uh, Canada. So um, but for this week, Rudolph, I think, is is probably going to be the play. Joe, is that your read as well, that Rudolph's going to get the nod here? Yeah, unless Pickett somehow logs a full practice today, I just don't know how he can really prove to himself that he can keep himself healthy and protect himself against, you know, a Seattle defense that has a pretty solid pass rush anchored by Boye Mafi. Um, I think just for Pickett's health, going with Rudolph for this week's going to be the decision that the Steelers make. Um, I don't really see any way that Pickett suits up again unless he can somehow manage to log a full practice today. But given that he's been limited, uh, all week, last week, really limited. I don't really know how many snaps he's gotten. I know Patrick Peterson on his podcast kind of just said he's on the field and wouldn't dive into how many reps he was getting in practice earlier this week. So I think that Rudolph is going to be the guy for Sunday. To my understanding, you know, limited often means, and just based on some of the reporting with Pickett, individual drills only, not working in team. And I know that on Wednesday, Rudolph confirmed to reporters he got all the starter reps. So I don't think Pickett's worked in team. To me, it, it, it does not sound like health is necessarily the issue. Tomlin, though, could cite, and Dave and I mentioned this, I believe, on Wednesday's show, just a lack of reps. That, yeah, he was healthy you know, enough to play technically, but the reps weren't there and didn't want to put him in that situation. So that also might be the out that Tomlin uses. But you know, we heard Kenny Pickett and Mason Rudolph. We also, of course, heard Pickett speak on Wednesday, and he did not seem happy. He was itching to play. He told reporters he feels healthy. It's up to the coaches and trainers and doctors to clear him. But he said he was good to go. And so in his mind, if he does not play this weekend, I think he's going to interpret that as, you know, that they just wanted to go with Rudolph. And you have to wonder how that's going to sit with Kenny Pickett today, this weekend, next weekend, and during a long offseason. Yeah, Ross, I saw uh, Chuck, Chuck Pagano's uh, comments in the Pat McAfee show yesterday saying Kenny, Kenny's pissed, um, essentially, from that answer that he gave the one word no uh, to asking if he had learned anything on the sidelines um obviously you know what what's a guy going to learn on the sidelines if he watches all the film he watches and all that but yeah i do i do kind of get the sense that and it's natural for for pickett to maybe feel a certain type of way i think he's uh by the time the game happens he'll be 28 days post injury or post surgery one or the other uh, that's the exact same timetable that he returned uh, in college when he had the same injury and the same surgery. So um, all signs point to, you know, if Rudolph had played poorly last week, Pickett probably would have been able to go, in my opinion. 100%. And yeah, there is no doubt in my mind that Kenny Pickett thinks he's healthy and that he should be playing in this game. And so th- there's there's a twofold handling for Tomlin, A, not trying to create controversy in the national media side of things, which I think Tomlin has done well because there is still kind of the guise of the injury and he's limited. So he must not be healthy and the reps aren't there. You can get away with that this week, Ross, as you said, next week, you really can't play that card, but internally, this is, this matters more than the outside noise, especially in Pittsburgh internally, Kenny Pickett, I I think feels slighted by this. Um, And in his interview, which was, as you said, kind of terse and, you know, him basically saying, I want to play, you know, it's up to the coaches. Do they want to play me? 
that that's going to be a lingering question, I think, going into the offseason. Joe, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Pickett's a competitor. That's the one thing mm-hmm. you can always say about him is he's just a guy who wants to fight. He wants to be out on that field. Um, I mean, we've seen we've seen him make miraculous recoveries from injuries before coming back. Uh, he had, you know, he had that rib injury against Jacksonville, um, came back, he played Thursday uh, against Tennessee. So he's a guy, he's going to do everything in his power to be back on the field. And like Ross said, he had this surgery before. He knows, I, I would assume he knows if he thinks he's healthy enough to play. And if he does feel healthy enough to play, he's probably going to be a little upset if they go through it all. Long term, I don't think it'll be a big deal unless, you know, this offseason the team goes and brings in other legitimate competition. Let's say they go and sign a Jacoby Brissett sort of guy that they know can start in this league. Then maybe it becomes a little bit more of an internal issue if uh, Pickett feels they're bringing somebody to like really compete for his job or if they draft a quarterback high. Neither of those things I think are going to happen. But I think that's where then it could linger and become more of an issue rather than, you know, just a one week. You could kind of massage it to him. Hey, you didn't get the reps that we wanted to see. I think, you know, I, I he could manage one week going through it off again. Week 18, it becomes a bigger issue when he's healthier and he can return. And that was kind of a date that was pinpointed. Hey, he's going to try to get back for week 18 uh, in the national media. So then it becomes more of a story outside as well. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how they handle it after this week. Um, like I said, I think they can kind of massage it this week internally and externally, even if Pickett's a little bit pissed off. Uh, but going forward, it's going to potentially balloon if the Steelers continue to roll with Rudolph or look to you know provide some sort of real competition for Pickett this offseason. No, I agree. And, and I'm not saying that Tomlin's doing anything wrong. I mean, what matters first and foremost is what gives you the best chance to win this game in Seattle on Sunday. That's the mission. It's a um, you know, essentially a must win. There is, I guess, technically a path for Pittsburgh if they were to lose this game. But essentially, they have to, to win out to really have a realistic chance and path at making the playoffs. So um, but but there's a there's a cost and a consequence if you're going to you know essentially stick with Rudolph and, and pick it, I think, is revealing what that cost is with him not exactly happy with how he's being handled but if you win and in advance then then it all works out in the sense of you know you're you're still in the fight but then as rosh you said you know if if rudolph plays well they win i I don't think you can rationalize and bench rudolph at that point if he has two solid performances to get you two victories going into week 18 a must-win game so that you know essentially would mean that Tomlin has to say that Rudolph is a starting quarterback, which opens up a whole nother can of worms for again, the off season. Yeah. I, I, uh, one more, one more talking point, I guess on Mason Rudolph starting, um, last week, obviously, uh, in the friendly confines of Pittsburgh. Um, and, and this week he'll be, uh, obviously playing in Lumen field in Seattle. It's one of the most hostile stadiums in the league. Uh, if you go back to, I think it was 2011 or whatever it was with Marshawn Lynch's Beastquake run, the crowd noise actually registered as a minor earthquake. Um, so it's going to be a whole different uh, ball game for Rudolph. It'll be interesting to see how he handles that type of pressure um, and, and that type of noise because it's going to be loud for that offense. And if you're into history, Pittsburgh has not won in Seattle since 1983. They've dropped their last five contests. So just something to note there. Rest of the injury report, again, we'll watch Landon Roberts to see if he if somebody's going to play, you know, even though he's been essentially ruled out, it might be Roberts with how tough and he's played through some injuries this year, that groin injury on a short week to uh, to suit up against New England. But we'll assume right now it'll be Miles Jack and Michael or uh, Michael Walker, excuse me, getting the start inside linebacker. Blake Martinez should dress if Roberts does not. I wonder who will start at safety. Let's assume Minka is out. Let's assume Trenton Thompson plays. 
I think Patrick Peterson remains at free safety, at strong. Will it be Thompson? Will it be Eric Rowe? There could be some mixing and matching happening here. I just wonder where this thing is going to go. Maybe not the most important question of the week, but Joe, if you had to kind of guess who your two starting safeties in this game will be, what direction would you go? Yeah, that's definitely something that's kind of caught my eye throughout this week. I think they would roll Peterson and Rowe because the two of them looked really good against Cincinnati. Obviously, they both have the pick. Peterson's is a little bit of a gift, but you know he was he was solid in coverage. Um, Rowe did look like he the, the player that he had been you know kind of the past few years, even though it was his first game of the season, didn't really look all that rusty. Um, it was a really solid performance from him. So uh, I do think there will be some mixing and matching. Obviously. You know, throughout the years, there's been a lot of tread on both Peterson and Rose tires and the, the older guys. So can kind of steal some reps and keep them fresh by getting Thompson in there, who has looked good when he's played. But I think if Thompson goes, which it looks like he is, he was full yesterday, that I do think Rowe and Peterson will be the two starters, um, you know, mix Thompson in there. Seattle's got a great receiving corp. So, you know, kind of want to keep guys fresh and ready to you know, be able to run, keep up with, you know, the Jackson Smith, Jigba, uh, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, if he can go. Um, just have as many healthy bodies as possible and coverage is going to be important. So, but I do think it would be Rowan Peterson to get that started safe. Ross is, or excuse me. Yeah, I was going to go to Ross there. I'm getting uh, people mixed up. Ross, is that your thought as well in terms of the safety pairing this weekend? Yeah, I think Peterson had a good, a good game and he's obviously talked in the media and on his podcast about how he kind of wants to maybe make the full-time switch to safety in the future. Um, I think the, the point I keep going back to is Tomlin discussing um, September players and December calls and all uh, whatever that was. Um, I, I think he likes having two veteran presences back there. Eric Rowe's obviously been around in the league for a while. And same with Peterson, um, you know, Trenton Thompson's a young player. He's only got a handful of starts and all that. So uh, I think rolling with the veterans back there, I, I, there's the added opportunity to move Peterson around a bit if they do want to bring in Thompson, which can only be a bonus. That brings up a really interesting point. Patrick Peterson speaking to the media and then also on his All Things Cover podcast that dropped yesterday, essentially saying that he understands that if he wants to, you know, have you know, more longevity in football, he's going to have to make the switch from corner to free safety. And I think back in the off season, he was pretty resistant to the idea and he wanted to be a corner and, you know, stick there as long as he could. And obviously playing safety was really more out of team need than the team wanting or deciding to try him at safety uh, with all the injuries that they've suffered. But Peterson basically admitting that, you know, free safety is in his future if he wants to actually do that. So the question is, how do you, and this is a, you know, long view, who knows what will happen kind of question for next year. I imagine Peterson will be a part of the 2024 roster, but, you know, if he does play safety or play safety in a fuller time role, he's obviously going to be more of a free safety than a box guy, but you have Minka Fitzpatrick as well. So Ross, I'll start with you. How do you just right now? And again, there's a lot of variables we don't know in terms of draft, free agency, et cetera, but how do you think that could potentially look if Peterson becomes more of a safety than a corner? Yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting to see develop in the offseason. I think um, Peterson said he he really it, one of the main aspects he enjoys of playing safety is being able to talk to the defense. Obviously, when you're a corner, you're out wide. He said you can only really speak to a couple people over on his side of the field. Um, I I mean the 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 I guess the format or the path to making that switch. It's happened, you know, with multiple notable players over the years. Um, I I. Also like that both players can be moved around a lot. I mean, the 
Tomlin likes to kind of use these guys as chess pieces. And I think you'd have two solid chess pieces in, in Fitzpatrick and Peterson. So uh, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but, you know, I, I think it could be a positive moving forward. Yeah, I think in this world of sub-package football and different looks and groupings, they'll, they'll find a way to to handle that to some degree. I don't know exactly what it would look like. You know, Fitzpatrick is more capable of playing in the box. He had, you know, was doing so at a much higher clip this year before before all the injuries struck this year, um, you know, compared to, to previous years. So I think they, they can find a path for it. But, Joe, what are your thoughts on a potential full or fuller time move for Peterson to go from corner to safety? I think it would be a great move for Pittsburgh. Um, at corner, obviously, Joey Porter Jr. has kind of established himself this year. It's another draft where there's a lot of first and second round talented guys at cornerback. Um, assume the team's probably going to let Levi Wallace walk in for agency, but then mm-hmm. uh, Corey Trish Jr. is still an option. He's kind of the guy, I mean, towards ACL, but he looked good in camp. He's somebody that could play corner. There's, there's a lot of depth that can be found at cornerback. Um, I think Peterson at this point, he with the way he played, I mean, the one game sample size, but the way he played each safety against Cincinnati, I think it could be a good move for him, you know, late in his career. He's a good leader back there. Um, like Ross pointed out, the communication aspect of it, he can talk to a lot of guys on that defense. Um, he can kind of run things as, you know, quarterback of the him and Fitzpatrick, just two really smart guys in that secondary. Uh, for the Steelers, I think it would just be a great move. You know, they can get some young, talented cornerbacks in the drafts, maybe pick up a guy in free agency, um, kind of revamp that room with the avatar corners like they talked about with Porter Jr. And if Trace can become something, uh, I think it would be something that ends up being really beneficial if that's the, the route that Peterson and the Steelers opt to take. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It was just one game, but he looked natural back there and he seems to enjoy the, the role in the position. So it's kind of funny how these things work out. You maybe, you know, don't love the idea for for a while. I, I know he was excited about the idea of being a versatile piece. That's that's partly why he signed. But I think he still viewed himself as a corner and not a guy that had to make that full time safety move, but seems to be embracing it. And he's a, he's a very self-aware guy. I really appreciate and like listening to him and his commentary about himself, about the team. I think he's honest and candid and understands you know that you're a 33 year old cornerback you can't you know play that position on the outside especially for for too much longer so again i don't know exactly what it'll look like i think there'll still be some slot corner in his future next year um but uh, there's some there's some options there which is good for pittsburgh to um go to the seattle side going back to the injury report situation joe you've been writing up the daily seahawks injury report and it's uh it's you've had your your work cut out for you it's been a long list of names to examine and i think the most notable one and again we don't know what the the friday status is this may be to some degree a, a moot point when all is said and done but dk metcalf as you mentioned earlier with a back issue uh did not have did not show up on the wednesday report but showed up on the thursday report as a i think did not practice or limited with the back injury any idea on his status? And then what are the other injuries to look at for Seattle? Yeah, so with Metcalf, it was interesting. He kind of cropped up. Uh, some of the Seahawks reporters I saw on Twitter were saying that they didn't see him at all in the uh, portion of practice that was available to the media. Um, kind of unknown where that injury came from because, again, he pr- wasn't listed on the report at all on Wednesday. Uh, if he can't go, that's obviously going to be a huge loss for the Seahawks. He's two yards away from 1,000 yards on the season. Um, kind of a matchup him and Joey Porter Jr. that I think a lot of people are looking forward to watching, kind of two big physical guys out there. Um, it, good matchup for Porter Jr.'s physicality and length, but if he can't go, then that takes away Seattle's biggest receiving threat. Other names to watch, Jordan Brooks, linebacker, he probably won't be able to go. Uh, he hurt his ankle against Tennessee last week, and that'll open up the door for Devin Bush uh, mm. to get some time against his former team. So that'll certainly be an interesting one to watch. 
Um, some other names, Jermont Jones is uh, not practiced last year with a shoulder injury. He was a big pickup this offseason from Denver for their defensive line. Uh, another name that's to watch is Jamal Adams and Devin Witherspoon. Each of those guys have missed the last two games. Obviously, Adams and safety. Witherspoon, the rookie quarter out of Illinois. They've gone limited the last two days. Um, their prognosis for their return looks good for this week. So big, big addition to Seattle secondary. They're getting Adams and Witherspoon back. And then one other name is just Jason Peters, uh, oldest active offense lineman in football. He, Pete Carroll said he dealt with a plantar fascia issue in his foot. Yeah, I think he played 14 snaps. Uh, in the second quarter against Tennessee before he suffered the injury. Um, and he had played well. Uh, you know, he's just one of those guys. He's ageless. You, you put him out on the field, you're going to get solid production. But if he can't go, that'll obviously impact Seattle's line. Uh, their other big injury they suffered in the Tennessee game was guard Damian Lewis, but he was full with a neck injury yesterday. So he is expected to play and probably start on that Seattle offensive line. Oh, good info, though. Thank you, Joe. And I always forget to mention the guest that we have on. We do have a Seahawks beat writer that you guys will hear from in just a little bit. It's Greg Bell, who's been covering the Seahawks for about a decade out there with the Tacoma News Tribune. And so we'll talk with him, and he does go through, uh, offer a run-through of the injury situation. That interview was recorded on Wednesday night, or excuse me, um, Thursday night. But uh, we'll talk to Greg here in just a little bit. But let's transition now, as Dave and I often do for the Friday show, the coordinator, corner of the coordinator, press conferences, Eddie Faulkner. Terrell Austin speaking with the media. I don't think either guy said anything too, you know, earth shattering, but we'll start there with Eddie Faulkner, obviously not really revealing the team's quarterback plans, although we, you know, hinted at where this thing's going to go. Ross, I'll start with you. Anything that, that Faulkner said in particular that stuck out to you? Uh, yeah. One thing at the beginning of his, uh, I think it was his second or third question. They talked about, um, Rudolph being so good in that game and 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 how they accomplished that. He talked about, uh, I think they said skinnying up the game plan or something like that. Um, I guess just from your film review, what what have you seen or what did you see that they did that you know really simplified that for Mason? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything that stuck out in a in a major way. Sometimes those things don't always reveal itself on the field. It may be your menu of plays are smaller, your package of you know red zone plays and third and seven to 10 type plays might be just a, a more limited menu. And, you know, that don't won't reveal itself in terms of the actual play call, but instead of having, you know, 12 calls, you might have six calls or something like that. But Rudolph, you know, he's been in the system. He is, I think Dave and I had mentioned this, you know, one of the longest tenured active Steelers. Only guys that have been in that building longer than him are Cam Hayward and TJ Watt and Chris Boswell. So it's a really short list. So um, it, it may have been some more behind the scene things overall um, in terms of skinning up that playbook. But I mean, one thing and I'm not slighting Rudolph at all, at a certain point, basically after halftime, he didn't have to do a whole lot in that game. You know, there was the great response he had after the Higgins touchdown hit Pickens the other way on a really good ball. But after that, it was basically they were just, you know, grinding out clock and they ran the ball really effectively only threw the ball, I think, 27 times in this game. So that kind of helped maybe skinny things up a little bit just because of the game circumstance of it all playing with a lead from the literal first pass to Rudolph through of the game. Um, Joe, your thoughts on Rudolph and anything else that Faulkner said? Yeah, the one thing that Faulkner said that kind of stood out to me was talking about, you know, the screen to compete. He was talking about in the context of the offensive line, but, you know, guys finishing blocks. The offense line was terrible against the Colts. I mean, mm -hmm. you covered it extensively, just how bad they were. It was one of the worst offense line performances teams ever had. Um, and they came out last week, 
They were, I mean, they weren't perfect against Cincinnati, but they were solid. Um, they kept Rudolph upright, opened up some holes. Um, I mean, obviously, we've talked the Jalen Warren block. We've talked about the Pat Firemuth block. You broke down. He all, Faulkner also shot of that one out. Like, talked about Firemuth. You know, he had the huge game against Cincinnati the first time. They kind of showed him out of the game plan because they thought Cincinnati would take it away, and he still gave it his all uh, with blocking. Like that, that that's really an area you love to see from him, and that's trying to compete. Just going out there and making their mark on the game. That's something we hadn't seen from the Steelers. They had, you know, came out flatter against Indianapolis when they built their lead. They kind of died off. There wasn't really that, you know, will to win and will to do whatever it takes to win. And we did see that against Cincinnati. And I was glad to see Faulkner kind of mention that, you know, particularly with the line and guys really finishing plays is something that um, stood out to him. And it's something that the Steelers are going to need going forward if they want to win out and make the playoffs. You're right. I thought, you know, the Colts kicked their butt in terms of the physicality in that game, especially in the second half as Pittsburgh really wore down and the Steelers really did the same to Cincinnati in the second half, really wore them down, um, running their feet, backs, linemen. As you said, the tight ends blocked really well in this game, Darnell Washington and Pat Frymuth. And and you're right, Faulkner said it. You know, I know that rightfully so, Warren decleating Jermaine Pratt gets all the attention and and it's it's an amazing block, one of the best of the season in, in the entire NFL. But Washington had a really good block. And then, yeah, Frymuth running Mike Hilton, you know, into the Steelers sideline. Somebody on Twitter joked he was trying to add secondary depth to Pittsburgh with all the injuries. So, um, yeah, it was really well blocked across the board. And they just were physical and, eff- and they had the effort. And as Faulkner said, uh, the strain. So, so that was really good to see. Flipping over to the defensive side of the ball and Terrell Austin, anything that, that he said that stuck out? There was one comment for me about, uh, Joey Porter Jr.'s gloves and, you know, Ben on his podcast suggesting to ditch the bright yellow gloves because it just kind of sticks out too much and, you know, will just increase the odds of you getting penalized. Ross, what were your thoughts on Austin's response, which essentially said, we don't really focus on those things. We're just focusing on him playing with good technique and the gloves really don't matter. Yeah, I don't know how much I, I mean, obviously it makes it more visible for him to, if he's wearing those bright yellow gloves against the white Jersey or whatever. Um, I, I don't know how much I buy into that, that mattering. I think obviously the the technique is going to matter a whole lot more there. Sure. Uh, Porter's at, uh, um, I mean, he's a few weeks ago, at least I haven't looked in the last couple of weeks, but he's one of the top three or four, um, defenders in terms of, of penalties committed. Um, that's kind of the lone, bugaboo on his resume right now he's otherwise had one of the one of the better years in the league i think there was a, a tweet put out by um who, what's his name junior fort gang i'm not sure it's one of those analytics guys mm-hmm. showing showing the different corners in uh man and in zone uh kind of on a matrix and and joy porter jr was up in the upper right quadrant meaning you know he's he's excelling in both so um i think he's you know doing everything that the steelers are asking of him uh, his his main thing is going to be cleaning up those penalties and all that. So, yeah, I think the Porter does not get the credit. He's been a good zone defender too. And the book on him coming out was he's strictly a press man corner. It's got to be physical, got to play bump and run. But I think he's you know really look comfortable in zone and playing different alignments because he's shadowing and traveling. He's working over slots. He's playing on different splits against receivers that move around some. Um, because when you're when you're facing top receivers, you know offenses know that you're trying to shadow and take that guy away. And so their response is to change alignments and motions and move that guy around. So he's not so static and and that puts corners into sometimes uncomfortable spots. But I think Porter's responded well. I mean, yes, I I agree that when it comes to, 
you know, penalties and avoiding those technique is first. That matters more than your attire. But my response to Austin would be, you can do both. This is not either or it's both. And yes, you need to play with better technique and clean those things up. But the gloves, I think they do make a difference. I mean, I think you've heard stories of players and coaches and Bill Belichick once getting on Julian Edelman for wearing these bright red gloves. And so to me, it's not, you can do both. You can change the gloves. And then of course you need to be able to coach the technique and um, the the details of your position. So I, I, don't, I don't think it was either, or I really want to see what kind of gloves he has on this weekend, because I'm sure, I'm sure he's thought about it or maybe somebody's pulled him aside and, and made that comment to him. Um, I just want to see how that looks. So Joe, your, your thoughts on Austin on Porter. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of just like what you said. Obviously, the technique matters. That's the most important thing. But when the technique's sloppy and poor, and it's, if he grabs onto somebody, it's going to send out a lot more when he yep. has bright-colored gloves that are completely opposite. Clearly, it's him. So, yeah, I think it needs to be both. And, I mean, Ben Roethlisberger said it a few weeks ago, too. He said, you take the good with the bad with Porter because he does so much good that you, you, you take the bad when it's a penalty or two. But you don't have to take the bad, necessarily. Obviously, the technique can be better. But if you just change the gloves, then maybe it reduces a penalty a game because they're not seeing it because it doesn't stand out as much. So, yeah, I do think it matters. Uh, in tour, and obviously, I mean, I have no I take no issue with Austin's answer. He's not going to and like spend time in his press conference really breaking down <laughs> his glove choice. Like, sure, sure. So but I do think in this in the context of things like it should be something that probably somebody like you said, somebody pulls him aside and he looks into the changes because even if it takes away one penalty, it's a beneficial change. Yeah, and I'm not trying to, you know, have this super color coordinated, but if the opponents were in white or light jerseys, wear white gloves. Patrick Peterson did in that Bengals game. If they're wearing, you know, dark gloves, I think they are dark jerseys. I think the Seahawks have their navies this week. Just wear black gloves. You don't have to have this thing where it's, you know, paint swatches where it's 100% identical, but just something, little things can help. The details help. This stuff does actually matter. Just as a kind of random question, Ross, I'll start with you. Who has been the better rookie this year, Joey Porter Jr. or Keanu Benton in, in totality, start to finish, week one to now? Who has been the better player? Yeah, I think you have to go with with Porter. Uh, he's matched up against some of the he's you know shadowed some of the top re- receivers in the league at this point. DeAndre Hopkins, uh, Jamar Chase. I think he had a shot at T Higgins. Um, we'll see how he does against DK Metcalf if he plays. Even if Mac- Metcalf doesn't play, they have, you know, Tyler Lockett, who's another fantastic receiver. He's been around for a long time. Um, kind of curious to see if if he would follow Lockett if if Metcalf isn't able to go or, or how that would work. But yeah, I think I'd have to go with Porter. Joe, would you take Porter or would you go Benton? I mean, Benton's, Benton's done it more. He got more playing time earlier in the season. He's right. getting that rookie wall. He's kind of he's he's really been consistent throughout the year. And both guys have stepped up in an area of you know their rooms have kind of. I mean, for the defensive line, Cameron Hayward went down week one. They have some guy Marvin Leal hasn't been as good as we thought he would be heading into this year. So Benton's really stabilized that line and the quarterback room for Porter. I mean, it has been that good around. And Peterson struggled early in the season. Give him credit; he's rebounded. He's been really good the last few weeks. Levi Wallace has been great. Um, but I think I think I will go with Porter because. You know, that week five game when he first got he got his first real reps against Baltimore, that really changed the dynamic, I think, of this cornerback room. Like he really asserted himself and he really stood out. Defense kind of went on a run from there. They weren't getting torched as much in the passing game. Um, and he's like Ross said, you know, he's ranked in the upper right quadrant of all these things you look at of how good he is in coverage. He's been one of the best quarterbacks in football. Um, I love Ben and I love what he's done for this team. 
I don't think he's been one of the best defensive linemen in football. He's been one of the best rookies in football. But I think I'd give the edge to Porter in this particular head-to-head. Yeah, I think Benton's been a bit more consistent, but Ross makes a really good point about the difficulty of the challenge that Porter has had to be a rookie and to come in, you know, by what the Titans game, I think week nine that was, where he's, you know, shadowing the top receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. And at the time, I think Pittsburgh kind of downplayed it a little bit about screen game and kind of hiding some of the tackling aspect of Porter's game, which has improved by leaps and bounds, by the way. I think, you know, people still typecast Porter as this press man guy. And certainly that's his kind of bread and butter, why he got drafted where he did. But his tackling is much, much better now. His zone coverage, I think, is really solid. His feel for the game has improved by a ton, even just compared to early in the season and certainly compared to training camp. But yeah, I think, Ross, you convinced me on that, just the difficulty of um, being that top guy week in, week out and and stepping up uh, probably trumps what Benton has done overall. Yeah, I mean, what does this what does this secondary look like if a guy like Joey Porter Jr. doesn't Ooh. emerge in the way he has? Like, are, are you able to move Patrick Peterson back yeah. to safety? And then what what does that leave for the safety room? I mean, so I think he's been very very important. No, that's a that's a great point there. Anything else uh, from you guys from Faulkner and uh, Terrell Austin that stuck out to you? Any comments that that I didn't mention? The only one I would say from uh, from Austin is. There was there wasn't a ton of confidence, I don't think, with Jalen Smith um coming in. I mean, obviously they signed him earlier this week. They don't know a lot about him, but uh it was just kind of like, you know, a we'll see. I feel like that's kind of a signing just in case, you know, Roberts' injury ends up being worse than they thought it was, or they God forbid they suffer another injury to the mm-hmm. uh, inside linebacker room. But he just didn't seem all that confident. I mean, look, there's only two games left in the season. I don't know how, how much they would get from him anyway, but Ah, it was it wasn't really exuding confidence that you know we're going to get a lot from Jalen Smith this season. Yeah, I, I think it's really just this team. They've been hit so hard by injuries. You're trying to find veteran type guys that you know if more injuries happen because they keep happening, there's somebody that's you know played some football before. I'm trying to find the comment exactly that Austin had on Smith. He said, "Quote." We'll see. Like we brought the other veterans in, I think the biggest thing is trying to get him up to speed as fast as possible. I don't know how much. I don't know much about how he is in the classroom and that kind of thing. I bet he's pretty good. You don't become an all pro and play some good football in this league for a lot of years and not knowing what to do. I think it's going to be a matter of time. And he seems to be picking up things. The little bit we've given him in a day, he's picked that up. Okay. So yeah, it's going to be a learning curve and you know, it's kind of like miles Jack, but Jack had the benefit of he was in the system last year. And so it was probably a much quicker pickup. And with Jack, it was kind of more about getting back in the football shape and, conditioning than it probably was you know him understanding the the details of the playbook so i mean hopefully you don't have to see jalen smith just for the simple fact that likely means more injuries have occurred and this team has suffered more than their fair share at inside linebacker and at safety just down the middle really really hurting them so ross is that kind of your thought as well probably won't see smith and if we do likely means somebody got hurt yeah, I agree with that. Um, also, Blake Martinez is still around and he's been preparing in the system for, you know, obviously a few more weeks than Jalen Smith will have had the opportunity to. I think um, it was interesting to hear from Smith himself and say how he's been in this position before uh, signing with the team on a Friday and being expected to play on a Sunday. And, you know, I think he actually gave two examples, signing on a Wednesday and playing on a Sunday. So uh, this is something that he's done before. I don't think he's obviously going to have the opportunity to do that this week, but um, you know, if, if, if they do end up needing him uh, I think he would at least be semi-serviceable. You've seen it with Eric Rowe now with, with 
uh, Miles Jack, some of these guys coming basically off the couch, off retirement and stuff like that, uh, playing well. So I, I don't think we'll see him. But if we do, I, I don't think it would be a huge liability. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the elevations will be the same as last week. Um, Jack and Rowe getting elevated. You can only have a max elevations of, of two guys. So maybe for week 18 on Smith, but we'll see how things go and, and see Robert's status as well, because it does not appear to be season ending. We kind of thought, okay, he's unlikely to come back. when we saw that injury happen against the Bengals early in the second quarter. Now it seems like maybe there's even a chance for this week, but more likely maybe something could happen in week 18. So that will also uh, lessen the odds that Smith is available. So with that in mind mentioned earlier, I have a Seahawks beat writer on the show recorded that interview on Thursday night, just to be clear. And that man that we're talking to today is Greg Bell of the Tacoma News Tribune, longtime Seahawks beat writer. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at GBell Seattle. We'll take a pause and come back with Greg. And welcome back to the Terrible Podcast. And again, as we mentioned, top of the show, have a special guest today. He covers the Seattle Seahawks for the Tacoma News Tribune. You can find him on Twitter at GBellSeattle. It's Greg Bell. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Alex. Happy holidays. Yep, same to you. So big game here this Sunday between Pittsburgh and Seattle for both sides, both teams eight and seven. It's funny, these are the two teams with the with winning records and the worst point differentials of teams with winning records. So you kind of want to see which team is going to come out on top here. Just to start things off, Greg, Geno Smith, great year last season, some regression this year. I know he's had some injuries too. He's back now. Is that just normal regression kind of to the mean, or is there another explanation for why the numbers aren't quite as gaudy as they were in 2022? Well, Alex, it would have been unrealistic for anyone, including the Seahawks, to expect Geno Smith to equal 4,100 yards and 30 touchdowns and only 11 interceptions and leading the league in completion percentage of 69%. Mm-hmm. First first career Pro Bowl, he made his first playoff, playoff start at the end of last season of his career. That was probably not realistic that he was going to set three, four team records that he set. He broke through three of Russell Wilson's records last season. But what has changed for him, you mentioned the injuries. He had to – he first – Aaron Donald crashed into him in the middle of November and bruised his throwing arm, his tricep, and he says he's still rehabbing on that. And then he tripped over a teammate December 7th in a practice and strained his groin. That cost him the next two starts. And Drew Locke has had to play two of the last three games because of that. Smith returned last weekend in Tennessee and led the Seahawks to a last-minute drive and win. But their offensive line has been a problem that has subverted a lot of what Smith wants to do. The drop-back game and deeper routes to D.K. Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, they often can't do because of the lack of pass protection. And they have not consistently run the ball. (laughs) Steeler fans don't need to hear about that problem. (laughs) how it could help an offense by simply running the ball more consistently and effectively. But that's been Seattle's issue of the opposing pass rushes just tee off on this offensive line when there has been a lack of a running game. And Kenneth Walker, their lead back, has been injured for a lot of this season. He runs with a very punishing style that, much like his predecessor, Chris Carson, and that Carson, of course, had to retire because of injury. And now this week there's another injury for Kenneth Walker. He's got a – a shoulder issue coming out of the Tennessee game. He hasn't practiced this week. So the the lack of a run game has really combined with the offensive line issues to make this a lot tougher year, less productive, more turnover-prone year for Geno Smith. 
Sure, that makes sense. Since you mentioned the running game, how does let's assume for a moment that Kenneth Walker plays, how does the backfield split when they're healthy work between him and Zach Charbonnet? I think the numbers are similar in some ways. Walker seems to be more of the goal line back seven touchdowns this year to Charbonnet's one, even though he's a guy with some size and power. How does that, you know, committee approach work in Seattle? Well, Charbonnet has been the rookie from UCLA, second-round pick. They drafted him to be a more of a 1-1-A arrangement with Walker, but it hasn't really come out to be that. Uh, he's a clear number two. Um, Walker gets the majority of the carries. Charbonnet's effectiveness has been in the middle of the field, and then his yards per carry go way down in the red zone. And he's made guys miss between the 20s. He, he is more of a decisive one-cut runner and go. He's also a guy that will run you over. Walker is more patient. He reminds me a lot of Le'Veon Bell. And gotcha. he waits for his blocks, and sometimes to the point of taking losses. But he really is patient, much more so than Charbonnet. So they are two different backs for sure. But uh, this these injury issues and the fact that he's now sick on top of a shoulder injury, you would think Charbonnet would get some more uh, carries than he has even all the season. But even when Walker has been out – the Seahawks have just not run the ball, even with Charbonnet in there. So uh, it, it is it clear that the number one back is Kenneth Walker. They just frankly don't run the ball enough to make their offense dynamic. This is kind of going to be a really specific question, but watching some of the tape on Seattle, they have some kind of funky formations, running backs to get offset, some sort of weird, you know, old wing T or single wing formation I saw a couple weeks ago. Is that stem from a Pete Carroll philosophy? Or are they just trying to integrate some different looks into the offense? Where does that come from? That's Shane Waldron, who's a disciple of Sean McVay and the Rams. Ah. And he used to be the quarterback play, passing game coordinator, play, uh, quarterbacks coach and tight ends coach for McVay. And the Seahawks signed him from McVay's staff a couple of years ago to be a first-time, full-time play caller in the NFL. They do, they'll line up, they go multiple tight ends more than anybody in the league, and they'll line up two of them in the backfield. And you mentioned uh, T and uh, formations in the backfield, two of them off from tight ends. Mm -hmm. uh, they they throw a lot out of multiple tight ends. Um they they run a lot of they don't they don't run as much motion as say the Rams and and the Dolphins and some of the other heavy motion the, the Chiefs, but when they run motion, uh, it's often to get Jackson Smith and Jigba their rookie slot receiver in matchups in a short motion right before the snap. Uh, they don't motion too much with Lockett and Metcalf other than to to reveal whether it's man or zone coverage. Uh, none of that jet motion or, or quick motions that, say, the Dolphins do. But some of the, the funkier formations is Waldron trying to get uh, matchups uh, and use their tight ends, multiple tight ends. Noah Fant, the former first-round pick of Denver, is the number one guy in the contract year at tight end. Will Disley, they gave $24 million to a three-year contract before last season, is the number two guy. And then Colby Parkinson is a third tight end that they actually split out wide as a wide receiver last week on the game-winning touchdown pass against Tennessee. He's 6'7", so when they do split him out, they're trying to get him in a height mismatch against a 5'11", 6-foot type of corner, and that's exactly what happened on the winning touchdown pass one-on-one -on -one in Tennessee last weekend. It's interesting coming from that McVay tree because the Rams are the most 11 personnel team in football, but Seattle is 13 personnel. It's kind of Interesting to see that split. Greg, to take a, a step back from an injury view, it's a it's a CVS list of names I saw in the Seahawks report today. Right, Metcalf right. with the back. You mentioned Walker. Give me an overview of the, the guys most likely to miss this game, and especially on Metcalf, what's the status of that back injury? 
Well, that's a new one. Uh, he didn't have, he wasn't reported to have had an injury coming out of the game last weekend in Nashville, and he was listed as a full participant and, and no injury issue yesterday. So the presumption is he got hurt in practice doing that. Uh, he has missed practice time, sometimes entire weeks of practice, yet still played. He's had rib issues. Uh, he had a hip injury. Uh, he's, I mean, anyone who watches the NFL know the guy's a tank. He's 6'4 and 240 pounds. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot to sideline him. Um, this injury being somewhat new, I, I can't tell you how likely it is that he'll miss the game. But knowing Metcalf and how just physically superior he is, I'd be surprised if a midweek uh, injury, a back injury, would keep him out. The Seahawks are really conservative between games of, of not practicing guys that are even sore or any issues at all. And a back, I'm sure they want to keep quiet. He, it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't practice again tomorrow, yet still plays. Jordan Brooks in the middle of the Seahawks defense is an issue for Seattle. And I think it's an issue that Mike Tomlin and the, and the Steelers are already focused on attacking. Brooks sprained his ankle in the first quarter in Tennessee, didn't come back, and that changed entirely how the Seahawks wanted to play. They were going to use Devin Bush, you all know him, former Steeler first-round pick, as a big nickel against Derrick Henry and the Titans. And then when Jordan Brooks got hurt next to Bobby Wagner, they had to move Bush from that more of a hybrid nickelback role on special situations to a base inside linebacker. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't played much of that this year. They've moved him around, and he's been a backup to Jordan Brooks most of the season. He's been on a lot on special teams, Bush has, and they've been playing him recently as a, they go dime, and they use him as a big nickel in the dime. Well, if Brooks can't play and he hasn't practiced, and Pete Carroll has been really, um, really downplaying his possibility of playing this week, then Brooks, then Bush, excuse me, Devin Bush will slide into the starting spot as the base inside linebacker next to Wagner. They are the Seahawks getting back. Devin Witherspoon, their best defensive player this year as a rookie, the corner who starts out left corner. And then when they go nickel, he's more of a traditional covered cornerback, slot cornerback inside. He's also a really good tackler for his size. Mm -hmm. he's, had a, he's had a hip point and missed the last two games. It looks like he's going to be able to play. But Devin Bush in the middle next to Bobby Wagner and the Seahawks' problems all season was stopping the run. I really think – the Steelers' offensive game plan starts with running at the middle of Seattle's defense and testing with it. They gave up 162 yards to Tennessee last week. And that typically is Pittsburgh's goal, sometimes more successful than others. But Yeah, we, they we, always we say it, it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in practice, it's a little different story. My, my last question for the offense is the tackles. Charles Cross, uh, Abraham Lucas, you know, he was hurt. He came back a couple weeks ago. To me, on tape, crossing like he was struggling some. A couple of young guys. What's your evaluation of both those those players? Well, they think they have bookend tackles that are going to be their starters, four-year starters. Uh, they started both as rookies last year. And Abe Lucas on the right side was out for two months with a knee issue that just came off, as you mentioned, injury reserve a few weeks ago. So it's only been a few games they've had, both tackles starting. And uh, Abe Lucas went out after the opening game and didn't come back until a couple weeks ago. So they haven't been together. Uh, Cross has been beaten by some of the elite edge rushers off the edge. And uh, he's the seventh pick in the draft and first first round pick for them. Uh, one of the picks they got from Denver in the Russell Wilson trade. So they think very highly of him. Uh, <laughs> they'll think a lot more highly of him if he can stop T.J. Watt and <laughs> Smith on Sunday. And they're going to chip. They're going to keep some of those extra tight ends in the block. They're going to bring D.J. Dallas in on third down the block. They'll have Charbonnet, the running back, in the block. 
I'd be very surprised if Cross and Abe Lucas are uh, one-on-one with Highsmith and Watt for much of the game on Sunday. Sure, that makes sense. Defensively, getting sacks from a lot of places, eight guys have at least three of them, Mafe, others, you know, really leading the charge. Is that an intentional goal to have that, you know, source of sacks from so many different people, or is it just kind of the collection of talent they built up over time? Well, it's actually an ad hoc pass rush now that they lost in Chenna and Wosu. Their leading pass rusher went out for the season with a season-ending injury in early October. And since that injury, Alex, they have really much just kind of had ad hoc and mixed and matched. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boye Mafe had a sack in seven consecutive games to set a Seahawks record, and he's been really quiet since then. Uh, he's only had, a, I think it's one or two sacks here in the last month. Um, they tried to sign Frank Clark, who they, of course, drafted out of Michigan and had for a couple of years. And, a, and including a Super Bowl year, and then he left to go to Kansas City. He came back, and he's been a non-factor. They, they signed him right after the Nuoso injury, and he's been a non-factor. In fact, a healthy scratch for two of the last three games. Uh, they have a, a rookie from a second-round pick from Auburn, Derek Hall, who they've tried opposite of Boye Mafe. Daryl Taylor, another second-round pick from 2020, uh, opposite of Boye Mafe. Jaron Reed has really been the more consistent pass rusher from inside, a defensive tackle, three-technique type of tackle, and sometimes plays off the nose. Uh, he's been an inside pass rush to complement Boye Mafe. Draymond mm-hmm. Jones, they have Draymond Jones from uh, – they signed from Denver for $51 million offseason contract, which is really expensive for Seattle. Jones had a big sack that really ruined the Titans' last chance to get a tying field goal in the final seconds of Tennessee last weekend. But Jones has been a better pass rusher now that they moved him more outside at defensive end since the Seahawks acquired Leonard Williams in a trade from the Giants at the end of October. Williams hasn't had the sack numbers, but he has the pressures. And he also makes Jaron Reed and Draymond Jones better because Williams' reputation precedes him, of course, from the Giants and the great seasons he's had there. So a lot of offensive line pass protection plans – begin with Mafe on the edge, double and chipping him, and then often one or two guys on Leonard Williams, and that gives guys like Jaron Reed and Draymond Jones chances in the pass rush. You mentioned Devin Bush earlier, likely to fill in for Jordan Brooks, but I know Steeler fans are interested in, in Bush's evaluation. I know he's not played a ton this year, but also Artie Burns. What's his been? It, it seems like he's been able to kind of revive his career to some extent in Seattle. Just overall, your evaluation on field of Bush and Burns. Well, Bush, I, I was I was somewhat surprised they kept him on the roster because once they, they signed uh, Devin Bush as insurance that Jordan Brooks wasn't coming back from his torn ACL in January, and Brooks came back in eight months and surprised everybody. He surprised the Seahawks that he was back at the end of August, ready for the beginning of the regular season, and that took Devin Bush's every down snaps at linebacker away in mm-hmm. the defense. That, that made him a special teams player. But they signed him to a $3-plus million deal, and most a lot of that money was guaranteed. So they kept him for that reason as well, as they could use him on special teams. And if Brooks uh, could not last coming back from the ACL, well, he's lasted until just recently now with this ankle injury. And that's why Devin Bush has not played a lot. So they've tried to find a different role for him, which is why this big nickel against running teams has become his new role with Jamal Adams had been sidelined the last two games. Artie Burns has become a nickelback. It's a second career for him. It's not something he's done before. He said he didn't do it in Pittsburgh, and you know that more than I, and he didn't do it in Chicago after he left the Steelers. 
And they used him basically out of necessity once Devin Witherspoon got hurt a couple games ago. And they tried him at Pete Carroll, moved him. Carroll, by the way, the head coach is still very much a defensive backs coach. And he's in the middle of the drills out here at defensive backs. And he teaches technique on the field of practices. <laughs> if there is a position group that he is most involved in, it's defensive backs. And he moved Artie Burns to nickel. And he did it in the summer. And he wanted to get depth there. There was a question a lot of us had, why did they re-sign Ernie Burns in May? Because they just drafted Devin Witherspoon and they had a Pro Bowl corner and Tariq Woolen coming back and had Mike Jackson at the other corner who had started last year. And they had Trey Brown coming off injury and yet another corner they really liked. Well, Witherspoon's injury showed why they wanted Artie Burns. And they made him a nickelback and he's done well. He did well in the, the Philadelphia game playing for Witherspoon against Jalen Hurts in the past. They held the Eagles to 143 yards passing that night, and they went on nickel quite a bit. Uh, I don't expect Burns to play as much, if at all, on defense this week if Witherspoon comes back. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact, like I mentioned, they're probably going to want to go uh, extra uh, nickel and, and defense in a dime situation with six defensive backs and one of them being close to the line of scrimmage. Jamal Adams is coming back this week, it appears, or at least going to try to with his knee issue from the torn quadriceps last year. If Adams plays, I think Adams takes Devin Bush's role of last week as a big nickel against the run and dime. Bush is the uh, linebacker in base, the linebacker next to Wagner. And then Artie Burns will probably lose snaps because of Devin Witherspoon will be the defensive back inside slot corner. Gotcha. Just two more questions for you, Greg. Just overall, who is an unsung hero of that Seattle team? Offense, defense, special teams, somebody who does not get enough credit, especially from a national, maybe Pittsburgh Steelers fan cap uh, point of view. Well, he gets overshadowed because DK Metcalf's on the team, but Tyler Lockett to me is, he's a glue guy. When it's third down and you need six, he gets seven. And when you're in the red zone and you need a touchdown, he's the guy they throw to. Metcalf is the physically superior matchup for them. But teams know that and they bracket coverage him. I'd be really surprised if the Steelers didn't have Porter on mm-hmm. Metcalf underneath and Peterson lurking over the top. And that often gives Lockett chances. And Geno Smith knows it just like Russell Wilson knew it before. And he's the most experienced receiver going on his 10th year now. Uh, he is really good against zone. He's really good at finding space and coverages and then immediately getting down and avoiding hits, but often doing it when he's past the line to gain. He's not one of those receivers who runs a nine-yard route on third and ten. He, he's really aware of, of where he is on the field. He's really good at dragging his toes and making ridiculous sideline catches. He's known for that out here. I don't think he gets the national and NFL notoriety that um, certainly Metcalf does, but teams know him. Mike mm-hmm. Tomlin knows them. That defensive staff knows that when they really need plays, you know Smith's going to look at Tyler Lockett. And he's been consistent doing it at this level yeah. for a long, long time. But you barely hear of him, right? You don't sure. think of him as a perennial guy, and he's a global caliber receiver in, in the plays he makes. Absolutely. Speaking of longevity, Pete Carroll, I mean, the guy is 70 something, but he's got the energy of somebody, you know, half his age. If you had to guess how much longer does he plan to coach for? Because to me, it seems like he has no plans of retiring anytime soon. He doesn't. And during the four game losing streak that just ended at the Eagles game a couple of weeks ago, December 18th, people were asking that question. (laughs) Will he want to walk away? Mm -hmm. Uh, Alex, he will coach here as long as he wants to under the current ownership. Jody Allen does not want to change regimes. She wants to continue what 
her brother Paul Allen, the late brother Paul Allen, started. And he's got a contract Carol does through his 75th birthday, through the 2025 season. There's no reason so far to think he doesn't want to coach at least that long. Now, the estate, I can go into all kinds of stories about the the sale and the future uh, ownership of the Seahawks. But there is an estate sale, and it mandates that the Seahawks are part of that sale. When that happens, maybe year two or three, it may be before Carroll's contract ends, and then he may have a choice to make on whether he wants to continue coaching or whether a new ownership would want to have him around at age 74, 75. But you see him, Alex. He runs 100-yard dashes every day during practice and uh, during special teams. He's doing free-throw shooting drills and contests with his guys. He's playing loud music and dancing around. He he really does have a youthful exuberance and energy that belies the fact that he's 72 years old and he's been coaching since Richard Nixon was president. (laughs) Finally, Greg, we always like to uh, ask our guests for their score prediction, no obligation to do so, if not some keys to the game. But if you have a prediction, feel free to to share it with us. Well, I watch the Steelers a lot. I mentioned to you off air that I'm from the Pittsburgh area. I still have family there. My son's a huge Steeler fan. We don't miss any of them. Uh, I think the Steelers' key, as I mentioned earlier, is to run at Seattle and test their run defense. The question is, will they do that? And you watch some Steeler games, and it seems like they never run the ball or should have run the ball a lot more. Um, The Mason Rudolph, it's going to be interesting to see how Mason Rudolph comes off that game against Cincinnati last week and continues in a, in a loud stadium. Mm-hmm. The, weather's not, the weather's not supposed to be a factor, which it sometimes, of course, is in Seattle in the winter. It's supposed to be a relatively mild and calm day on Sunday out here. But uh, I think the Seahawks have a uh, a more dynamic offensive attack if they get pass rush. And they can possibly – their defense is so suspect. If the Steelers don't run at Seattle, it plays into the Seahawks' chances. Uh, I like Seattle mainly because they're at home. I know the Steelers are as desperate as Seattle to get a win, but the the home field, the trip across the country, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, again, the Steelers needing – I just – if I was a Steeler fan, I'd root for them to run the ball and trust trust somebody who has watched the Seahawks play every day for the last (laughs) 10 years. They cannot defend consistently against teams that are committed to the run. Teams that have really stuck to the running game, San Francisco chiefly, Baltimore, Tennessee last week, have absolutely steamrolled the Seahawks by the second half of games. It's often the teams in the NFL these days just don't do it. That will be the sounds to me when you, if you're the Steelers on how to approach this game. Let's call it a higher scoring game. I think Mason Rudolph's going to light up. The, some of the secondary issues that Seattle has had. Devin Witherspoon coming back helps the Seahawks. We'll call it 31-27. My Steeler fan son won't like that. He's going to be in the 300 level cheer with, his ter- <laughs> with his terrible towel cheering on the Steelers. But I think it's going to be another close entertaining game. Not as mm-hmm. good as that. Not as good as the last time that the Steelers came to Seattle. One of the best games I've ever covered in a regular season. That 39-32 with Roethlisberger and Russell Wilson shootout. But I think it is going to be a higher scoring game. Gotcha. Yeah, Pittsburgh has to run the ball. They do not win when they don't run the ball and don't run it effectively. So that's what it's going to come down to. Greg, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Happy holidays. Happy New Year and good luck on Sunday. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot. Happy holidays and Happy New Year to all Steeler fans out there. Appreciate it. And welcome back to the Terrible Podcast. And again, our special thanks to Greg Bell for his valuable insight. Now, he's a busy man around the holidays. And so... 
really appreciate him taking the time to speak with myself last night. Again, be sure to follow him at GBell Seattle. That's Greg Bell, longtime Seahawks beat writer, currently with the Tacoma News Tribune. Ross and Joe, let's ourselves preview this game. Again, both teams, eight and seven. The worst point differentials of teams with with, uh, winning records in the NFL. Currently, Pittsburgh at, what, negative 34. Seattle, negative 32. Seattle was on a four-game losing skid and then had two wins back-to-back in the last two weeks against Philadelphia. And then a crazy last-second win against Tennessee. Of course, Pittsburgh getting off the schneid with their big, comfortable victory against the Bengals last week. We'll start with the Seahawks offense. Geno Smith back at quarterback last week after missing time with injury. Still don't know the status of Kenneth Walker, DK Metcalf, etc. Ross, I'll begin with you. When you look at the Seahawks offense, what concerns you? What worries you? What do you think fans have to watch out for? Yeah, I think Geno Smith, just being the veteran that he is and having that mobility, that's always a concern. Um, he's able to, I think Tomlin talked about it in, on his Tuesday presser, um, Geno is able to create create stuff late in plays. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for this team. Obviously, we the Steelers have excellent pass rush, and, and so they'll be able to limit the length of some of those plays. But uh, Gino's mobility, just being able to kind of buy time for some of those receivers to get open, uh, I think that that is going to be a struggle. Obviously, the injuries that they have and some of the question marks there uh, could have a significant impact. Like I was talking about earlier, um, Joey Porter Jr. matching up on DK Metcalf. If Metcalf isn't able to go, they do still have weapons. They have uh, that 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 rookie, even Jake Bobo's played hero for them a couple times this year. Um, and and Tyler Lockett, I think he's had four or five straight seasons over a thousand yards and he's approaching that number now. I I think he's definitely wanting to push to, to hit that a thousand yard mark um, for his fifth straight year. So uh, overall, um, yeah, Seattle's, Seattle's offense, the Geno Smith, the mobility thing is, is what scares me the most. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he had that career year last year and the numbers have come down a little bit, but as Greg said, you know, expected some regression. It was probably unsustainable to put up the really kind of bonkers numbers he did a year ago. And by the way, uh, shout Greg out on Twitter. If you guys have not uh, done so already forgot to mention that, let me get his Twitter handle one last time for you guys. That's at G bell Seattle. Uh, let him know that you heard him on the show and appreciate him coming on. Joe, when you look at the Seahawks team beyond Geno Smith and beyond maybe a DK Metcalf, what else kind of concerns you with how they're built? Yeah, so Kenneth Walker, uh, obviously he's on the injury report this week, but he's the type of back that can hurt the Steelers. Um, He's been pretty solid this season. He's been a weapon for Seattle, kind of help them withstand uh, the loss of Smith with Drew Lockett. It's a pretty solid game in that Monday night win against Philadelphia. Um, And it's really just... If, I think the pass rush for Pittsburgh is going to be key. Seattle's offensive line isn't great. Charles Cross, I think, is probably their best guy on that line. Um, but they got so many weapons at receiver that if you give Smith time to throw or, like Ross said, let him escape the pocket and make plays with his legs to extend him, he's going to find guys open. Um, obviously, Porter Jr. is awesome. He's been great this season. But, you know, the rest of Pittsburgh's secondary is a little bit patchwork right now because of injuries. Uh, I would be I would be a little bit nervous about a Jackie Smith and Jig Beasley guy who's come on a little bit lately. He had six catches against Tennessee. Lockett's always super consistent. Um, even Noah Fan, I know he hasn't had a great year, but uh, Terrell Austin mentioned him in the press conference yesterday as a guy that can hurt them over the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen, the Steelers have had their fair share of issues covering tight ends over the last few weeks. 
Uh, Michael Walker, not necessarily the best guy in coverage over the middle of the field. So, I mean, fan's an athletic guy. He's got some speed. He's big. Uh, so it, it's definitely their, their, their passing attack is definitely a little bit worrisome heading into this one. Uh, I think it's really going to be paramount that Pittsburgh, you know, brings pressure, maybe bring some of the simulated pressure they did against Cincinnati just to throw some different looks at Seattle. I think that's going to be pretty important if they want to win this game and, you know, kind of keep their playoff hopes alive. I think for as much as we discussed the receivers, and rightfully so, it's a really good trio of Metcalf and Lockett to me, one of the most underrated and consistent guys in football. I, Always been a big fan of him coming out of Kansas State. And then, as you said, Smith and Jigba, who's really come on strike, had that great touchdown catch a couple of weeks ago. And it's, you know, been a real, he's, he's leading the team in third down receptions despite only having 59 catches on the season. And so he's really kind of been uh, a chain mover, a possession down guy for them. But they have really good tight ends too. And I think David dropped the stat in our group chat. They run the second highest rate of 13 personnel in the NFL with Fant and Disley and um, is that Colby Parkinson, I believe. And so they really kind of use some big people as well. And while Fant had a really hot start to the year, I think 45% of his yards came between weeks two and four. And he's kind of been pretty quiet since. You're right, Joe. I think they're going to utilize him a lot because they know the difficulties that Pittsburgh you know, has right now at off-ball linebacker and at, at safety. And Fant's had success in the past in Denver. Um, I think it was what he, he beat Devin Bush on that one corner route uh, way back when. Now they're, of course, teammates in Seattle. So that's kind of a, a funny storyline to see. But I think Fant's a guy that could have that big play down the seam. Um, so you're going to have to deal with him. But I think in the run game, they're going to go 12 personnel, 13 personnel. And, and they have some kind of funky looks, too, with offset running backs and um, kind of these you know tight end side cars and some kind of just different things that you don't typically see. And so how do you handle kind of some of the you know, formational funkiness of that run game and just kind of how they line up is something to watch. Yeah. I, uh, going back to the draft, I remember some of my friends obviously living in Seattle for a while. I remember the chatter was, why did we draft a guy like Zach Charbonnet? Um, they had Kenneth Walker, they had DJ Dallas. Uh, I think even if Walker's unable to go, Charbonnet is very, very capable. Um, especially I, I, I did his draft profile back in, mm. in the off season and he's very capable as a receiver as well. And, and the Steelers obviously have struggled in the, up the middle of their defense, uh, as of, as of late. And so, yeah, the tight end thing, but I think, um, some running back screens and stuff like that could also give him some fits. Their skill guys are really deep at receiver at tight end. You mentioned Joe, Jake Bobo, and that was one of Dr. Melanie Friedlander's, you know, guys and prospects. And she called it. She crushed, uh, crushed it. He plays in some of those kind of big people situations, kind of their miles Boykin, where he's going to come in and 13 personnel, be that lone receiver, that big body block, or it's going to, you know, crack the linebacker on their crack toss game or, you know, stock block uh, somebody, crack, replace the safety, something like that. So um, it's a really good skill group. The O-line, I think, is more questionable. They've had some injuries there with Lucas coming back at right tackle. I think he's played relatively well. I think Cross has had some issues at left tackle. Um, the interior line, I think, is some decent run blocking, pass protection, maybe a different story. Greg talking about the run game really has not been strong for them, not been efficient for them. They're not running the ball a whole lot. And so in theory, that should play well for Pittsburgh because typically, and this is true for most defenses, but when you can make the opponent one-dimensional and, and take away that run game, you're going to make life tough on them, especially for a team that's not protected Geno Smith in the quarterback position all that well. So, Joe, do you think that's kind of the key is just minimize that run game with or without Walker and then just kind of tee off on Geno Smith? Yeah, if they if they force Saturday to throw and make them one dimensional, I think the game's going to go in Pittsburgh's favor. Um, 
I think against the Titans, that offensive line really struggled. The run game didn't get going. Um, obviously, Lewis is coming back, but you know, Anthony Bradford and Abraham Lucas on that uh, red side of that line haven't really been all that special this season. So I think it's a game where the Steelers really have to you know, get some push. Big opportunity for Keanu Benton, Cam Hayward, really plug a hole in the run game. Um, if Again, if they let Walker beat him or Charbonnet beat him, it could be a long day because then they sets up the play action. It opens up a little bit more in the pass game for Smith. And, you know, you can see more of those funky formations that can kind of run some more off of that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think they're going to have to really, that's going to be the primary focus and then getting pressure and being able to tee off on Smith. That's the path to winning this game. Ross, if you're Pittsburgh and you're uh, coming up with a game plan, what are you doing to try to best, you know, minimize the Seahawks offense? Uh, yeah, I, I I think um, with Geno Smith tending to hold on to the ball a little bit longer, the, the pass rush is really going to come into play. I think Abraham Lucas, uh, he suffered a knee injury early in the year. I want to say it was week one and, mm-hmm. and wasn't able to play until just a few weeks ago. I think this will be his fourth or fifth game back. Um, he's allowed, I want to say six or seven pressures over that time and one or two sacks. So he hasn't allowed a ton, but on the other, on the other side of things, TJ Watt, uh, I believe he had six pressures in in last week's game alone. So, um, that's definitely going to be a matchup to watch, um, in terms of like schematically overall, um, yeah, I, I, I really think, uh, being able to to limit some of these, I mean, Tyler Lockett is one of the best route runners in the league. He has been for a long time, um, and so if especially if Metcalf's not playing, um, just figuring out a way to limit Lockett's ability to uh, the Steelers been playing more zone lately. Mm-hmm. So if 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 Lockett's you know able to find the soft spots in that zone, I think it could be a long day for the Steelers. Um, so just just being able to limit some of that stuff. Yeah, I think. If Metcalf plays, we assume the Porter's going to be on him for essentially the entire game, and, and that'll be a really fun matchup. There'll be it's going to be just a, a tug of war, a wrestling match more than probably you know receiver quarterback play, just based on the you know physical styles. But t- putting that aside for a second, then how do you cover Smith and Jigba, and how do you cover Tyler Lockett? You don't really have that depth to at corner Levi Wallace with additional time and at slot corner with Peterson. We presume he'll be the starting free safety in this game. Shandon Sullivan will kind of have the the arrow on him against Smith and Jigba inside in the slot and Lockett as well because Lockett of course can play in the slot. I think Sullivan had a really good game last week. I know Austin shouted him out uh speaking to the media yesterday, but you know Sullivan is not known as that high level cover corner. So that concerns me probably even more than the Metcalf situation, although Metcalf can can make that kind of freaky you know, downfield play, does Pittsburgh have the ammunition to be able to cover consistently both Smith and Jigba and Tyler Lockett on paper does not work in their favor. All right, flipping over to the Seahawks defense. And Joe, I'll start with you looking at this unit overall, your thoughts, your impressions, some strengths or weaknesses to uh, to tell the listeners about. Yeah, so I think the loss of Jordan Brooks is going to be a pretty big one. Obviously, you know, we've seen what Devin Bush can do. Um, Seattle seems to be a little more confident in his abilities, but Brooks has kind of been a do-it-all guy on that defense. Not having him is is definitely going to hurt a little bit. Um, obviously, Leonard Williams is kind of the big name. They acquired him ahead of the trade deadline from the New York Giants. He's been pretty solid there. Boye Mafi kind of had a breakthrough year. I think he's at nine and a half sacks this season. Um, really talented pass rusher. And then that's the secondary. The secondary is a little bit scary if you're the Steelers. Um, Jamal Adams, I know, has that of the best year. He's dealt with some injuries, but he's going to be back. 
Devin Witherspoon has been really, really solid as a rookie. Uh, had some rookie of the year buzz before this latest injury. And then we saw Julian Love had a really nice game uh, against the Eagles two weeks ago uh, at safety. Him along with Quandre Diggs are a really nice safety duo. Bobby Wagner, veteran uh, on the inside. He'll be next to Bush. Uh, it's 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 going to be it's it's a solid defense. It's going to be mm. a big pass for Mason Rudolph, especially in that environment. It's going to be a tough to get the run game going. They got some physical guys up front. Um, Najee Harris and Jalen Warren are going to have to, you know, like they always do, fight fight through, try to get some extra yards, break some tackles. Um, it's definitely a really talented unit. Um, I would not expect the Steelers to put up 34 points again like they did against Cincinnati. I think it's going to be more of a, you know, knock them out, drag them out, low scoring affair. Uh, and with a good defense, getting some key pieces back at Adams and Witherspoon. Ross, your impressions of the Seattle defense? Yeah, one thing that I was looking at, um, they've they've not allowed a whole lot to tight ends uh, this season, or really up the middle of the field in, in general. Uh, they've they've allowed one hundred yard plus tight end this season to Detroit, and that was at the beginning of the season. Since then, I mean, tight ends have had not even just a single tight end, the whole tight end unit has had a hard time getting over, you know, the 50 yard mark. Uh, the Seahawks under Pete Carroll like to play a lot of, you know, single high safety looks and stuff like that. I think one of the the Seahawks players earlier in the week uh, in one of the interviews was asked, you know, about how the Steelers had so much success last week. Uh, and they talked about, well, they, they were letting receivers behind them. So we'll start there. So I don't think the Seahawks are going to you know <laughs> be caught off guard by Rudolph's deep ball or anything like that. Um, I do think with uh, Brooks on, you know, on track to be out, uh, Jamal Adams on track to come back, that is going to offset that a little. Jamal Adams almost acts like uh, like an inside backer at times. Um, so I don't know, you know, if Devin Bush is going to be the full time starter or if they might kind of help alleviate that issue uh, with 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 putting Adams in there a little bit. But, yeah, overall, it's going to be it's going to be a challenge. I know they're no longer called the Legion of Boom. There is no. Cam, Chance, uh, Cam Chancellor and um, Sherman, et cetera. But this is Seahawks secondary. I mean, they hit. I mean, they're as, I think, physical as any secondary in football with Witherspoon and Diggs and Love. Like, you go over the middle on these guys, man, you're going to you're gonna feel it. And Witherspoon with three sacks. And, I mean, he's you know, one of those physical corners to come out and quite some time. So I, I, I just look at that and you attack the sidelines maybe a bit more because trying to run routes over the middle, is, not that Pittsburgh uses that area a lot, but I mean, they really make you pay. I thought Seattle was really good against play action against Tennessee last week. They really didn't bite and they covered crossers and they closed quickly and they recovered and they're, they're pretty disciplined. I think in that regard with their eyes, especially when it comes to the secondary, the run Defense is a big issue for them. And Greg spoke to that uh, a little bit earlier in the show. You can run on these guys. You have to be able to run on these guys. I think using more gap schemes and and, and power concepts um, to kind of work angles in terms of your down blocks or back blocks because Seattle likes to one gap and shoot, especially with number 90, Sharon Reed. He's got seven sacks this year. They want to get these guys up field. So you can kind of wall these guys off and work angles well and kind of work their aggressiveness, you know, in, to, to your advantage. And you said against them, I think that's going to work well. I saw Philadelphia have a bunch of success with some of their full blocks and, you know, power run game and pulling guards and that kind of stuff. So Pittsburgh, I think should do the same, but uh, Seattle has not been great against the run this year. And now Brooks is out. You have to be able to run the football to me, Joe, that's going to be a must in this game. It always is a must for Pittsburgh because they don't win. They don't run the ball, you know, effectively and efficiently, but Seattle can and, and needs to be run on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 
that's really when we've seen that's been the path to success for the Steelers and when they can really establish that ground game. They had when they had that stretch from what was week nine to week 12, where they had 150 plus yards mm-hmm. every game. And that was really when they were playing their best football this season. That's what's going to have to happen. Like you said, the gap schemes are going to be important because this is if if they try to run this, is a team that wants to, you know, get those guys upfield, yeah. then they're going to get hit in the backfield if they try to just dig straight ahead. Um, and we've seen way too much of Steelers running backs can't hit the backfield over the last few seasons. <laughs> For um, sure. Definitely don't need that against Seattle. Um, yeah, just find a way to scheme to, you know, get some holes, get some lanes, and get to the second level. That's going to be one of the major keys for the Steelers this week. Uh, any other thoughts here with this defense, Ross? Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, there's talent in that, you know, Seattle defense, I think, top to bottom. But, you know, they've not been tremendously good. They've allowed a lot of, you know, I think they've had five games where they've allowed 30 or more points. That's one of the, the worst marks in football uh, overall. But any other thoughts here with the Seahawks defense? I think just one one matchup that I'm really excited for is seeing um, I don't know how many times they'll they'll see each other, uh, but George Pickens and Tariq Woolen. Uh, mm. Tariq Woolen's uh, six foot four, so he's you know a very oversized corner. Um, so that should be an interesting interesting matchup for Pickens if if they end up facing each other there. Yeah, talk about you know best on best, you know big long receivers and and big long corners and they don't you know woolen is just kind of a freak of his own um and and what i noticed on tape was and and, you know this is a broad statement but in a lot of three by one sets when the offense comes out three receivers to one side and a backside x receiver uh the seahawks will play combination coverage and so to the trip side they're going to zone it and they're going to you know kind of match it uh, based on how the routes distribute themselves but on the backside they're going to lock um, play man coverage to backside this meg coverage man everywhere he goes and so if you get you know Pickens backside there's going to be some opportunities for probably one-on-one coverage to take some shots and if you get woolen on Pickens, it'll be really interesting and potentially Deontay as well one-on-one if he can separate and get a step on somebody and do some damage post catch and so i think there's their zone based team not the old cover three like they were under gus bradley they're kind of more cover six and i think they're a little more you know exotic and they mix things up more than they used to. Um, but in three by one, they kind of play some combo coverages and will uh, lock the backside. I, I do think that D line is talented. I think they have some good players up front. Uh, Williams and, and Moffay has been a bit quieter after a really hot start of the season, um, but they got him and, and Reed and, and Edwards. And so I think dealing with that front four is going to be really critical for Pittsburgh. And then just kind of a last note, uh, special teams. They got some good specialists, especially their punter, uh, what Michael Dixon. I have the stat. Dixon's net punting average is better than Presley Harvin's, you know, overall average, pre-net average. And so that just kind of speaks to they have a real, real weapon there, a punter. Pittsburgh has not and does not currently. And so you wonder about, you know, close games like this one. We kind of think it's going to be close. We, we can presume that. Field position, uh, field position is going to be, you know, really important. And I think Seattle on paper has the edge there. All right. Uh, any other thoughts here with the Seahawks uh, offense or defense? Anything I missed? Uh, Ross, I'll start with you. Uh, I don't think I have uh, too much else to add, but uh, it, the Seahawks are at how many sacks uh, this year? They've 45. got 45. Yeah. So, um I think that, that that's going to be a, a key. I think Broderick Jones in particular has been kind of hitting a wall in terms of his pass protection on the right side there. I think you wrote that article uh, the other day about are they making the same mistake they made with with Kevin Dotson or going down that path. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. They have a lot of bodies that they rotate through their D-line and they're, they're very strong uh, up front there. So I think um, 
that's kind of one of the key matchups that I'm I'm looking forward to. Just real quick, getting off Seattle for one second. Did do you agree? Should Jones go back to left tackle, or do you think it's just kind of one of those? Maybe teams are getting some tape on him, and so they're adjusting to him, and it's less of a left and right tackle issue as it is just an exposure issue for for Broderick Jones. It's hard to tell. Some of these guys, uh, you know, say it's like writing with your left hand. Uh, some of them are maybe a little bit more natural. It's it's hard to tell without talking to Jones. But um, I mean, overall, since he was inserted into the lineup. A lot of good things have happened for the Steelers. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just kind of hitting that wall as of late with his pass protection. So, uh, I mean, with Dan Moore Jr., um, what does he have? One more year on his contract? Yeah, so it'll be last year of his rookie deal next year. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, it'll be interesting to – that'll be a very interesting thing to see what happens with with his contract if they end up extending him. And and if they do, then, you know, that probably means that Broderick Jones is is on the right side for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think Jones' run blocking has still been excellent, even with his past game struggles, but you're seeing the pass protection you know, be an issue. Joe, your thoughts on Jones' future? Is it too early to tell, or do you think he should just go back to the left side next year? Yeah, I mean, pass protection is one of the knocks that I, mean, I kind of had on him coming out, like the way he dropped his hands in pass sets. Um, obviously, he's a beast of run blocker. I think I think he moved him back to left tackle. Um, even after, I think it was two or three starts, he had mentioned that still felt unnatural to him on the right side. And he's just got so much muscle memory and so much experience mm-hmm. on that left side in college that, okay, for now it works for Pittsburgh to have your two best run blockers at both tackle spots. But I think in the offseason, you move him back to his natural position somewhere where, you know, he knows what to do more. It's kind of more natural than where he's shown that he's th- thrived in the past in college. Um, more, I don't know if he can be that swing guy just because of his lack of experience on the right side, kind of like you wrote about. But I think they have to make a concerted effort to go out and find a starting quality right tackle and move Jones back to the left side just because they can't make the same mistake like they made with Dotson. Yeah. Um, it's just he can't hinder guys' development. The left tackle position is so important too. Uh, Jones, I think Jones is their best option in the future, and moving him there is not only best for him, but it's best for the organization, and that's where they're going to get the most out of him. I'm good with him being right tackle this year. I get it. They want their best run blockers out there and more. And uh, Jones are their best run blockers. And that matters more for Pittsburgh than pass protection right now. But long term, you, you're more invested and need to take better care of Broderick Jones than Dan Moore. I'm not trying to be mean to Dan Moore. He's been a hard worker. I, I like him probably still more than, than 99% of Steeler fans. But the focus is what's best for Jones. That comes first. And um, I, I just don't want to have that lingering question of, ah, what if, what if we put him on the left side? Is that really his best spot? And could he be even better at left tackle than right tackle, which kind of is what the question, the lingering regret there probably is with Kevin Dotson. So that'd be my, my move now that opens up right tackle. And I don't think more can be a right tackle. At least he doesn't think he can be a right tackle. So what that looks like, I don't know. Core four is going to be gone after this year. They won't pick up his March, uh, uh, bonus. So it's, it's wide open from there, but You'll deal with that with the the, the full offseason to find somebody to to be the starting right tackle. But yeah, I, I would put Jones back to left tackle for essentially once the season ends. I'm saying, Jones, you're going back to left tackle. Let's go rep it over there. So that'd be my takeaway. But um, what, we'll, uh, what we'll do now is actually, I know that Dave Bryant is not here for this episode, but he is here for a segment. Dave and I did record our picks and we're going to hear from our friends over at my bookie as well. We did this on Wednesday night. And so we actually have our picks made for the uh, Browns game, uh, just full disclosure there. So what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll take a pause, come back with David and myself, and then finish things up with Ross and Joe. 
If you found a $100 bill on the ground, you wouldn't walk past it. So don't pass up on a chance at easy cash with MyBookie. MyBookie has the biggest online selection of odds and contests to fill all your sports betting needs anytime, anywhere. So you can turn that sports knowledge into cash in your wallet. Bet on the NFL, college bowl games, or play for a share of the big cash prizes in the weekly blackjack tournaments. If you've been waiting for the right time to get in on the action, that time is right now. Make your winning move today. Sign up right now at MyBookie and use our promo code TERRIBLE, that's promo code TERRIBLE, and claim your deposit match redeemable up to $1,000. Again, that's promo code TERRIBLE to claim your bonus. Experience the thrill of sports betting right from the comfort of your own home. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie, and you can get to them by going to MyBookie.ag. All right, Alex, you ready to get some, uh, get our uh, Week 17 picks in? Yep, let's do it. All right, we got the uh, Cleveland Browns uh, hosting the New York Jets to kick the week off. Uh, the Browns and the Joe Flacco at quarterback uh, laying seven and, a half, seven and a half points at home against the Browns. Win and they're in. The Browns win and they get in and uh, they they cover the spread. I think that's as, as well too. I think they're probably going to blow the Jets out in this one. It's hard to think otherwise. There. All right. Next up, Dallas Cowboys at home uh, hosting the Detroit Lions. This should be a pretty good game. The Cowboys uh, laying six at home. Home sweet home. We talked about the Cowboys struggling on the road, kept things close against Miami last weekend. But at at home, even though the Lions are playing great, and you know, I think Dan Campbell's got this team clearly on the right track. I'll take the Cowboys. You know what? I think the Cowboys win this, but I think the Lions keep it close. I'll take the six points on the road against the Cowboys there. The Chicago Bears at home against the Atlanta Falcons. The Bears are the favorites here, laying three points at home against the Falcons. This one's tough. Bears playing better. Falcons hanging in there in that NFC South. Quarterback changes again. I'll I'll lean Atlanta. Don't feel confident, but I'll take the Falcons. I'll take the Bears. I'll lay those three points at home. Maybe the weather uh, plays a little part in this one as well, too. So I'll lay the three. Buffalo Bills at home against the New England Patriots. Uh, the Bills uh, laying three. 13 points in this one at home against uh, the Bill Belichick Patriots. Yeah, Patriots are playing better. It's about playing the Steelers. Got them a little bit on the right side of things. Defensively, they keep the score down overall. Buffalo wins. Patriots cover. I'll say this is a two-touchdown game. Be uh, Better to be sweating this one at the last moment. I'll take the Bills and lay the 13 at home. How about the Baltimore Ravens? This should be a good one at home against the Miami Dolphins. Uh, the Ravens laying three and a half points in this one. Yeah, I'm taking the Ravens. I'm just all in. Most well-rounded team in the AFC and potentially the NFL. Yeah, that Lamar Jackson looked good the other night against uh, the 49ers there. That's for sure. He's, he he really uh, uh, has to be accounted for. Makes it tough on opposing defenses. I'm with you. I'll take the Ravens later three and a half points at home. Uh, the Colts are hosting the Las Vegas Raiders who upset the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, but the Colts are at home. Uh, obviously, the Steeler fans will be watching this one. Uh, Colts laying three and a half against the Raiders. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I still can't believe the Raiders won that game. What, O'Connell didn't complete a pass after the first quarter? I just don't know how you can sustain such a thing, so I'll take the Colts. 
Yeah, sadly, I'm going to have to take the Colts to lay the three and a half points in this one as well, too. Another game the Steelers uh, fans will be uh, paying attention to, the Houston Texans at home against the Tennessee Titans. Uh, they're laying five at home against the Titans. C.J. Stroud should be back. That is a winning formula for the Texans. They get the victory and uh, by, let's say, touchdown. Uh. I think the Titans can keep this close uh, here. I will take the Texans to win, but the Titans plus the five points. Jacksonville Jaguars at home against the Carolina Panthers. It would going to be interesting to see what happens with Trevor Lawrence here. Uh, six and a half Jaguars favored at home against the Panthers. A battle of the cats. Yeah. Talk about Steelers watch on this one. We're paying attention to the Jaguars quarterback situation as much as we are Pittsburgh's right now. Carolina. A little bit of improvement. You know, they benefited from facing Joe Barry's defense last week. Still, despite the Jaguars' free fall, Carolina get right game. We'll take the Jags. I'll take the Panthers to cover Ooh. that six and a half points uh, on the road here. Philadelphia Eagles at home against the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, as you would probably expect, the Eagles favored by ten and a half in this one. Yeah, no brainer. I'll take the Eagles. Yeah, that's hard not to do. I'll take the Eagles late at 10.5 at home. New York football giants uh, at home. Uh, they are plus 5.5. The Rams are favored on the road by 5.5 against the Giants. No Tommy Cutlets. It's Tyrod Taylor getting the start. I'll take the Rams. Feels like the Rams can win this by 6 or 7, doesn't it? Uh, I'll take the Rams with you and cover to, to, to lay that 5.5 points and cover it there. Uh, San Francisco 49ers on the road against the Commanders. Uh, 49ers road favorites by 13 points coming off of a smarting against the Ravens. You know, Jacoby Brissett starting, maybe a little bit of a spark there. 49ers win. The Commanders cover, just barely, but they cover. I'll take, uh, boy, a lot of big numbers this week. Uh, I'll take the 49ers to cover that on the road. Uh, next up, New Orleans Saints on the road against the Buccaneers. Baker Mayfield's been playing some good ball. Uh, even so, the uh, Buccaneers are only two-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Saints in this one. Yeah, i got to take the Bucs in this one. Baker having a great year, going to probably return next season. Solid receivers, decent defense. Give me Tampa Bay. I'll take Tampa later, two and a half points as well, too. Kansas City Chiefs uh, looking to get back right uh, at home against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Chiefs are seven-point home favorites against the Bengals here. It's a big line for a Chiefs team that's been frustrating this year, to say the least. I think, though, that Raiders lost a real wake-up call. They're going to figure things out. They're going to get things right. I like Cincinnati, too but I'll take the Chiefs in this one. Yeah, I think so too, but I've been calling for the Chiefs uh, to get right every week, it seems like, especially <laughs> on the offensive side of football. Their defense is pretty pretty good. You know, I, mm -hmm. I think they can hold up here, but I'll I'll do it again. I'll take the Chiefs late to seven points. How about the Denver Broncos? Uh, the Russell Wilson lists uh, at this point, uh, Denver Broncos at home, laying three and a half points against the Chargers. Oh, God, which one do you want to take in this one? I, I had to pause for a second. That That's a contract situation you can sink your teeth into, Dave, I'm oh. sure. I'll take I'll take Denver. I'll take the Chargers plus the three and a half. Uh, I think they could possibly even win this as well, too. A lot of turmoil kind of this week uh, with, 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 with Denver. Uh, Vikings at home against the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and uh, who is it? Jair Alexander got... Uh, uh, put on the uh, co uh, what conduct detrimental to the team, and he's not going to play in this one. Uh, Vikings at home favored by two points against the Packers. Some coin flip drama. Didn't have that one on the bingo card. Despite 
the loss of Alexander, a top flight corner, Jordan Love, they're gonna they're gonna figure things out, turn things around, covering Justin Jefferson. Tough to do without Alexander, but I'll still take the Packers. Ooh, this is tough. Uh, I'll take the Packers to win this outright. So uh, give me the two points there. That brings us all the way back to the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday afternoon uh, visiting Seattle. They have not won there in uh, since well before you were born, right? Uh, what did I say? 19, what was it, 89? Okay, Last... four, four years before me. I'm, okay. getting, I'm getting up there in age. Dave. Yeah. I don't have my, my youthful exuberance anymore. Uh, and what did I say that they're and five in their last five mm-hmm. games in Seattle, uh, the Seahawks at home laying three and a half against the Steelers Steelers. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen is I'm having an existential crisis. I don't know what to make of anything anymore. Up is down, uh, down is up. Uh, how, how do you pick this game? Really? How do you, I, I don't have a feel for it right now, to be honest with you. Um, I, as we were kind of talking about our picks and making the other selections, I had written down Seattle 21, Pittsburgh 20, and thinking about it some more, maybe play some good run defense, get the Geno a couple times, Mason being effective against kind of that still maybe cover three-ish type defense. I, I flipped the script mid, mid-conversation. I got Pittsburgh winning this one 21 to 20. All right. I've got a similar score here. My hope is the Steelers will actually be able to run the football on the Seahawks. You know, the Seahawks have been good the last couple of weeks when it comes to explosive plays. Uh, I'm sure you guys talked about uh, all that earlier in the show here uh, today. But uh, I think the Steelers might, especially if uh, Devin Bush has to play quite a bit in this game, it would be interesting to see how the injury report uh, shakes out on this one. Uh, I think the Steelers do get a couple of passing explosive plays in this one. And and, uh, I can can see T.J. Watt having a pretty nice game in this one and maybe getting to Geno Smith a couple times, maybe getting that football loose here. Uh, I don't have them scoring as many points as they did against Seattle, but I have the Steelers coming out on top in, in this one, maybe a late field goal wins it. Uh, the Steelers obviously need this game. I've got it 23 to 20, Alex. All right. So there you go. A win on both sides. We'll see what happens and come back and talk about it on, on Monday. And welcome back to the Terrible Podcast. And uh, again, kind of a, a funky show today, uh, splicing things together. But we did uh, d- did technically hear from Dave and uh, both got the Browns game correct. The Browns are in the playoffs. They're going to finish over Pittsburgh for the first time since 1989 in the division. That is a, it's a crazy world we're living in, guys, where Joe Flacco looks uh, looks pretty impressive. He's been a stud. Yeah, I mean, I, I know Mar Hamlin's probably going to be the pick, but... I would I would go with Joe Flacco for comeback player of the year. He's playing. You can make a case he's playing some of the best football of his career. Maybe you know that 2013 run. He was obviously very talented down the stretch, but you know his stretch 300 yard games. Like he's did looked like a really brand new, different quarterback. It's a, I mean, as frustrating as this has been, Cleveland. It's kind of been fun to watch. 38 year old Flacco balling out out there. Ooh, it says how little sacrilegious Joe saying it's fun to watch Flacco in a Browns uniform. But you're right. I mean, you have to respect what Cleveland's done this year, what Flacco's done this year, all the injuries. Um, you talk about really where scheme and coaching matters. It really reveals itself, I think, whenever you have injuries, when things are when teams are healthy, it's early in the season, you know, when the the waters are calm, yeah, coaching probably matters a little bit less. It always matters, but a little bit less. But whenever you're really kind of in the thick of it and you're persevering through all the crap Cleveland's dealt with um you got to give a you know Kevin Stefanski a ton of credit there um Ross your thoughts on on the Browns and their success yeah I, th- I think last last night it was there was that one play where Flacco took a huge shot to the face and then he rolled out and 
uh, tossed the ball on the move and created, you know, a big play kind of late, late in the play. Um, very the, impressive. The four touchdown. Is that the one you're referring to? I, or something I else? think, yes, I believe that was, um, yeah, he took a huge <laughs> punch to the face basically when he was still in the pocket and then he rolled out and looked, uh, looked like a 10 year younger version of himself. And trying to stay awake on the sidelines in the second half. I mean, that just kind of sums up uh, his age. But, uh, you know, when he steps on the field between those white lines, he's not playing like he's 38. So back to Pittsburgh. Dave and I made our picks, both taking the Steelers. Dave taking Pittsburgh. What was it? 23 to 20 if memory serves. Myself, 21 to 20. I want to get your guys' picks as well. Joe, I'll start with you. Your prediction for this game between Pittsburgh and Seattle. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Seahawks 24-17. I Ooh. think I think I think the Lumen Field crowd's gonna gonna play a factor in the game. Um I just think the Seahawks have a pretty solid roster. The defense have been playing a lot better as of late. I think they've held uh, their opponent to I think 17 points the last two weeks. Um I I just think I feel like the I just can't get excited. I feel like the Steelers are due for a letdown. They'll just the way they the, that three week stretch, I think it just beating me down as well as they played against Cincinnati. Um, I just think Seattle's weapons at receiver are going to be tough to stop. And, uh, I don't know if the offense is going to be able to move the ball as well as they were last week. So I think, I think this might be a Seahawks victory. All right. Fair enough. I respect the, uh, the honesty there, Ross, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be tough to slow down, uh, the Seahawks with all the weapons they have, uh, even if Metcalf's not playing, they have, they have plenty of weapons. It's going to be tough. I mean, last week, the, the Steelers defense, they had some of these new pieces and they performed well in their roles. Uh, but one game, you know, one game is just one game. Um, I think maybe this week, some of that catches up to them a bit. So maybe it is a little higher scoring than, um, a little, little bit higher scoring than last week. Uh, so I, I have the Steelers winning 24 to 21 in this game. Um, I, I do think that Mike Tomlin, uh, despite all of the the kind of negative storylines and stuff of the last month, I think he does have this group locked in. Um, I think the group is rallying behind Mason Rudolph. I think the Lumen Lumen Field is a definitely an interesting X factor with with Mason Rudolph. Um, mm-hmm. and that'll be interesting to see how he deals with that. But uh, the Rudolph, you know, ride the hot hand. I think uh, I think maybe next week Mike Tomlin's going to have a little bit of a tough decision if if Mason pulls this off. It is going to be definitely a different feel for Rudolph compared to last week being on the road against a stronger defense overall. And then I think, again, Seattle having some tape on, okay, this is how the offense looks under Rudolph. Um, I know the Bengals, again, weren't unfamiliar with him necessarily, but 2019, you know, the I mean, that was the last time I think probably he played the Bengals. And, and it's a totally different world compared to the, the player and the way these teams are shaped, you know, here in 2023. So um, that's going to be a challenge. I'm not going to, I mean, hopefully Rudolph goes out there and has a great game. He could, who knows, but. Um, it may not be as uh, pretty as it was last Saturday. A couple of things I forgot to get to, probably should have had earlier in the show, whenever Dave and I don't have our six-hour pre-production meeting that we religiously have, I always kind of forget these things. Heinz Ward and James Harrison, not among the final 15 finalists to make the 2024 Hall of Fame, so both semi-finalists. Again, that was the same story as last year. Listen, I know people love Heinz Ward and, and, and want him in the Hall, and I get that, but to me, his only path, only chance of getting in the Hall is going to be through the senior committee. I think he'll be eligible in 2036. He's just, you know, at the end of this log jam, it's not going to get any better over time. I just don't see any way in which Heinz Ward ever makes the Hall of Fame through the modern era path. 
Yeah. Do you see, uh, I mean, I, there's a separate discussion to be had about this, but when Antonio Brown becomes eligible, his numbers are certainly up there and that would be the the path of maximum pain for, for fans in Pittsburgh to see a guy like Antonio get in there ahead of Hines. You think that that's a, something that could happen? It'll be really interesting with AB. I mean, I think he's eligible. I think I wrote in what, 2026 or 2027. Um, he's not going to be a first ballot guy. There's too much baggage there. It just kind of depends. Well, it depends on, you know, have we heard from AB in a while by that point? If he's still in the news for all the wrong reasons, then voters are going to turn up their nose at him. And I get that. And that's fine. If he's maybe just kind of gone quiet and people can kind of reflect a little bit more on the actual amazing career that he had on the field, it's going to help his chances. So it's really up to kind of AB and how, how active he is, I guess, in the media circle kind of depends on, I think, maybe how quickly he'll get into the hall. Uh, Joe, your thoughts on on Warden Harrison as well. You know, Harrison, you know, he's he's behind some guys and Freeney and others and uh, Jared Allen, you know, for example. So he's, he's got a tough path as well. Yeah, with Ward, like you said, there's just too many guys in front of him. It was just it's just a bad time right now to be a Heinz Ward-esque receiver with, you know, the Andre Johnsons, the Reggie Waynes of the world all becoming, you know, eligible around the same time. With James Harrison, um, you know, I mean, this guy's on an edge, but it does irk me a little bit. You know, Ronnie Harrison is getting the finals over him. I got into it on Twitter with like a year ago with another Boston writer uh, <laughs> about about the merits of the Ronnie Harrison versus James Harrison. Who deserves it more? Um, I, for Harrison, yeah, it's tough when you're being compared to the likes of the Allens and the Freenies, but, you know, and he just doesn't have, I guess, the career longevity kind of broke into the league late. Um, I mean, it's an awesome story. I think his numbers may be fringe Hall of Fame, uh, but he's another guy that I don't know. I think you might have to kick it down the can to the Veterans Committee like Ward, because um, at this point, I just don't know if there's really a path for him to get in either. What What was the argument to put Harrison, Rodney Harrison, I should say, be more specific, over James Harrison? I don't even know where that argument would begin. I think clearly James Harrison deserves it over somebody like a Rodney Harrison. Well, he argued that he had, I think it was something that it was more first team all pros instead of just all, I was like, well, James Harrison is more all pros in general. I'm like, it doesn't first team, second team, like the guy's an all pro more. I'm like, and he's got the defensive player of the year. And he has one of the best plays ever in Super Bowl history. Like, yeah, Ronnie Harrison was a part of some great Patriot teams, but James Harrison was one of the heart and souls of that 2008 defense, which is one of the best defenses of all time. Right. So, I, I had to stop after a while because I was just getting <laughs> back and forth and, but sure. I just, just truly a baffling argument. I just, I, I don't really, when I saw Ronnie Harris on the list, I was a little, I was a little bit annoyed at that. <laughs> and, they, this year, but. and they both have two rings. It's not like Harrison has more rings. I know Harrison, or actually, I gotta be more specific. James Harrison, you know, 05 was, was a backup and not the starter, but still they both have two rings. So it's not like you can use that as the argument. Not that it means that much to begin with anyway. So We'll see. Unfortunate for them. I don't know if that path, you know, is going to get any clearer. I don't see it happening for Ward and uh, Harrison. It's not looking too great right now. Been a been a tough week for Heinz Ward in general. Reporting coming out yesterday, he is no longer going to be the head coach of the San Antonio. How do you pronounce her last name? Brahmas. I, it's a it's a weird name that I can't wrap my head around. But uh, the uh, former what XFL team, that new merger. There's no official new league name, so we'll just call it the XFL San Antonio team. Apparently going to be replaced as the head coach uh, with Wade Phillips. And so Ward, presumably a, a coaching free agent, if Pittsburgh were to you know make some changes on their staff, let's say wide receiver Chrisman Jackson, wide receiver's coach Chrisman Jackson is gone. I, you know, it's it's an easy kind of layup answer. And sometimes those are maybe almost too easy, but I think Heinz Ward for wide receiver's coach, he reportedly had some interest before back in, I think, 2018 or so. I mean, I could certainly see Heinz Ward being a candidate to, to get hired by Pittsburgh. Ross, what do you think? 
I mean, that would certainly be interesting. You see some of these uh, effort kind of issues with with uh, Deontay Johnson on that fumble and George Pickens, obviously, with the Jalen Warren thing. Um, that obviously is not going to fly with Ward. Um, so it would be interesting if nothing else. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, Ward's, I think, I mean, it would be a, certainly, I think it would be a pretty good hire. Ward's kind of been talking a little bit more lately. Uh, in the media, offering some of his thoughts on the current Steelers and all the latest. He was on the podcast with Clark Judge and Ira Kaufman talking about George Pickens and, you know, what he would do if he was in that locker room. Um, I think it would be a good fit. I mean, I think Frisman Jackson's done a pretty decent job. Um, but if the team was going to move on, I really don't know if you can find anybody better who knows the culture more, who can kind of mm-hmm. had all this talk about the Steeler way being on. Well, you want to bring the Steeler way back, bring in Heinz Ward as a coach and have him, you know, kind of reestablish that along with Mike Tomlin in this locker room. Yeah, you said it. There's been so much talk and discussion, debate about culture, and you know, Heinz Ward sums up you know culture in a positive way, as, as well as you're going to find. And I don't know, you know, contract statuses. I think typically assistant, you know, positional coaches get two year deals, and Jackson got hired ahead of the 2022 season. So if that's true, and it's I'm presuming here, but if that is true, his contract would be up after the season, which would make it more of a seamless transition to move on if Pittsburgh wanted to. Don't know if they will, not saying that they absolutely have to. I did like the Jackson hire overall coming out, but it's certainly going to be something to watch and probably talked about uh, once the season ends for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So wrapping up today's show, hopefully it didn't run too long. I'm not even sure exactly how long the show is with everything kind of pieced together. But Ross and Joe, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate your filling in. Dave Bryan will be back, of course, on Monday to recap the Seahawks game, win, lose, or draw. Ross and Joe, thank you again. Really appreciate you guys being on. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. All right, now is the time for the outro, which I am just always so bad at. I, You guys have heard me before on these outros. The thing I'm dreading the most is trying to actually outro this thing properly. I actually have a list here to try to make sure I get everything I'm supposed to say. Otherwise, Dave will make fun of me for it, and, uh, and rightfully so. So, you can follow Ross McCorkle on Twitter at Ross underscore McCorkle. You can follow Joe Clark on Twitter at jclark1233. Be sure to follow Dave on Twitter at Steelers Depot. Follow myself on Twitter at Alex underscore Gazora. You can email the show at theterriblepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate, hit the donate button up on the page. Same with the ad-free version of the site. We certainly encourage, uh, encourage that. And until Monday, as always, thank you for listening to the Terrible Podcast.